welcome to episode 7 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 3rd of April 2017. I'm Joe, and with me is a full house this time, so we've got Jesse. Afternoon all. Phelim. Evening. And Ike. Morning. <laughs> that pretty much covers it for our international audience. I think we're good now. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. So yes, everyone's back and relatively fit and healthy. Um, hopefully I won't have to edit out too many coughs and sneezes and stuff. So uh, should we get on with the news then? And the first one is good news for at least one of us, and that is that Netflix now works in Firefox on Linux. Get in. Okay, let's have an audio hands up as to who uses Netflix. Me. Yeah. Okay, so that's two. And of those two, who uses Firefox? Me. <laughs> okay, well, that's one out of four. Congratulations. Well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, so this is due to, um, well, not due to, but thanks to DRM in Firefox, presumably. Well, no, I think it's thanks to them actually removing the stupid user agent block that they had on it, because since Firefox 49, it, it worked. I don't know why it took them this long to remove that. Um, maybe they were hand editing every config file using Ed. They basically put in the white divine support that you have in Google Chrome, so it's effectively the same plugin. Um, but obviously, you know, it works through Firefox, and Firefox downloads it dynamically when it needs it. But as you said, it, it's been supported in Firefox itself for ages now. And people have been ragging on them. It's like, can, can we just please have it in Firefox, please? So that we can just have out-of-the-box Netflixing. And yeah, it's taken them this long just to basically flip a bit. I don't think anything changed since Firefox 49 and now. Okay, maybe they've modified or tweaked it or whatever, but I'm not really sure what the delay was, to be honest. And so it works all right then, presumably smooth playback and all that. Yeah, we're grand. Um, it worked just as well as it did in Firefox 49. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Fair enough. Well, yeah, it's good news for a change to start on. Um, yeah, I, I've even less excuse to get out of my office chair now. Brilliant. <laughs> At least I used to have to drag myself to the TV and turn on the PS3, but hey. Oh, well, now it's slightly less proprietary. Um, right, let's talk about Let's Encrypt and their free certificates. What could have possibly gone wrong with the fact that anyone can use any domain to get any uh, SSL certificate and get your HTTPS going? Oh, what could have gone wrong is PayPal phishing sites. Yes, yeah, so it seems that there's a, an awful lot, sort of almost 15,000 uh, certificates been been allowed to be used by people that have PayPal in the sort of title of the site or, or as, a, as a tag within their um, certificate. So, and of those, it's like 200 are valid. So it's a it's a huge number of sites that have been set up to try and fool people into giving across their PayPal information. Yeah, like PayPal login.ch or something like that. That if you're not careful, you could see, oh, well, that is a proper certificate and it is PayPal, therefore... I'll put in my username and password. Because the thing is, most certificate authorities don't allow this, surely. Well, I think most certificate authorities are doing some sort of checking, some sort of human checking, whhereas this, you can just script it, and it gets certificate straight back, and there's no one doing any kind of like monitoring. But surely you can just blacklist certain words, like PayPal, for example. But it's not really... I mean, you know, this is obviously sort of pointing the finger um, at, uh, oh, who's done the blooming SSL thing? Let's encrypt. Let's encrypt. It's pointing the finger at them. But I actually don't think it's really their job to 
be the security barrier in this? I mean, surely there should be better ways or, or specific organizations or something whose job it is to try and stop these phishing sites or, or stop it at source or some other barrier that is incorporated into browsers and things. I mean, you know, in this uh, in this description, it does say that these sites generally last an average of two days before they get um, either taken down or, or blacklisted by Chrome and, and Edge and things like this. So, I mean, is it Let's Encrypt's job to check all of the certificates it's given out? Well, they're the certificate authority. So yes, it is their responsibility who they are issuing these certificates to. You can't just say that oh, some third party's got to do it because that's what a certificate authority is for. Or at least that's part of what they're supposed to be doing is not giving certificates out to sites that shouldn't be having them. Yeah, but the, it clearly isn't because otherwise they would be doing it. There clearly isn't a requirement for them to do it because they're not avoiding any laws they're not getting held up by in court or anything like yeah, the European yeah, okay. Union. So we're, yeah we're not talking about laws but um surely it like is within the remit of a certificate authority to to stop this sort of stuff happening well it and can't it, it can't be otherwise this this tracking and this checking of their logs you know these are uh, this information that let's encrypt has released openly and they've been checked through by security experts to find this correlation between paypal words and phishing sites and if it was something they had to do they would be doing it but it clearly isn't it's just being highlighted as oh look this is a problem but it's not their job to check it ike you don't use let's encrypt do you please tell me why well not not personally um I prefer, so if it's something like an organization, I do prefer to pay for the certificates. One, your identity has already been verified for the consumers of your site. So they have that advantage of kind of knowing that there was a process and somebody said yes to giving you a certificate. You know, there's no automation. And, you know, I have the ability to revoke my certificates and there is more of a trust relationship with it. But I think even though, yeah, it's kind of bad that there are bajillions of naughty certificates out there we are talking about domain validation here so does the onus really come onto let's encrypt for having the bad certificates or does it really come down to whoever it is letting these bad domains out in the first place and i think that's more of the problem so if you go on to any and i mean any of the big domain vendors i mean we are talking about the large guys here and i'm not going to mention some of them because some of them are responsible for some of my domains <laughs> so i'm not going to name and shame them right now but one of the domains i had to buy back recently was the old solacewest.com i wanted it back just so that nobody else could defraud the identity of my project not to use it just so it was mine again and I had to go for a public auction for that. So once the domain had reached a certain value and it was out there, they put it up for auction and it never goes back into the general pool again. So you'll see these bidding wars for clearly, clearly fraudulent domains being supported by the DNS providers, by the guys who are selling you these domain names. I kind of think the blame falls on them for supporting this culture, knowing full well what the people are doing with these sites. And you'll see them going for like uh, two, three hundred dollars every time for these clearly malicious domain names. So is it up to Let's Encrypt to stop that? Not really. They're kind of putting the polish on the turd that was already left there by the domain name registrars. I think it needs to be solved at the source. They need to stop profiteering off of everybody else's misery. Yeah, but surely if the registrars are going to sell these dodgy domains, Let's Encrypt could be helping everyone else out. 
the the wider internet by just blacklisting a few words. I mean, perhaps, yeah, but I, I don't think their focus is so much as something to filter the internet. I think their their main goal in general is to protect the content on the internet itself. So having encrypted communication. So you know that from one end to the other point, that that communication itself is secure. They're not really about identity and purpose verification. And I think their mission just really is revolving about um, the protection of the content itself. What content? Like my PayPal password, for example. Yeah, I mean, only that guy has stolen it, right? <laughs> so <laughs> you can't knock him there. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, speaking of SSL, OpenSSL decided uh, a couple of years ago to change their license from their dodgy, what is it, SSLEA license? Um, yeah, someone tell me how that's pronounced. Uh, SSLEAY. I've never tried to pronounce it in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and now they want to use an Apache license. And it's interesting that now they've started to contact developers. It's it's proven pretty difficult for them to relicense it. They should have done this as soon as they thought about it. But this is my view because when SSL pre- I only just thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's been on my mind for the last five years. Um, Pre uh, Heartbleed, SSL didn't have a lot of attention. Heartbleed came along, and then big companies suddenly poured loads of money in, and more contributors came along. It just made it more prominent. So had they decided to relicense it when it was still, I don't want to say in the shadows, because obviously it isn't, but still a small number of contributors, it wouldn't, wouldn't have taken that much to to go round and make sure everyone was okay with it and those that weren't maybe have a discussion or whatever it is. But now that you've got big companies making this push to bring it into, uh, it's an Apache license, isn't it? There's now loads of people and companies who have contributed. So it's now becoming a bigger upheaval to try and contact them all. But I mean, they have left it, you know, a year and a half, two years, whatever it is, with this warning that they're looking at moving. There's been quite a long time to, to you know air your grievances and discuss whether or not it's a good idea or whether Apache 2 is right. But as far as I can see, the only reason is that they want to move away from this SSLE, whatever it's called, license, to one which, which no one knows about, to one which is just more more, more common, more understood in the, in the big wide world of industry. Well, the, the problem is it's not that the existing license isn't understood. It's actually quite damaging for a lot of projects. And if you can avoid linking to OpenSSL, in most cases, you kind of should. So you do have problem in certain distributions. They have to provide two versions of curl, one that links to GNU TLS and one that links to OpenSSL because there is a linking issue with it. So I've got quite a few projects that are GPL2. I then have to say that this project is available under the terms of the GNU GPL2 license, blah, blah, blah. And then I have to grant an additional linking exception for that code so then it can be reused or I'm allowed to have that code and still link into GPL at the same time. It's, it's really, really bad. The, the open SSL license is very, very restrictive. So if it was more permissive, I mean, me personally, I am in support of this. I know it's going to be hard, but for a lot of the projects that are using open SSL and do require it, this will make it a lot easier because 
if people are then allowed to easily link to OpenSSL, there's certain licenses you can't do this. Or if you're writing a library that then say like a GPL free thing then links into, the linking exception is not there, you cannot use the library. So you can see it starts to get very, very complicated. Again, I'm not a liar. I just know it's a complete pain. If we get to the point where you can easily link to OpenSSL, we will then have people using it in their projects instead of rolling custom SHA-1 functions or that's a bad example. <laughs> you know, instead of doing their own crypto- uh, cryptography, doing their own hashes, they can use the proven library. So in that respect, I think it's a very, very good thing to happen. Can I ask why you haven't moved to Libra SSL then? Surely that solves the problem. Um, no, I mean, at the time you had OpenSSL, there was only a few guys working at it. Shit hit the fan really, really big, right? The industry reacted, mobilized, and then started to fund the projects. That was a good, albeit reactionary, but that was a good move. Libra SSL was more of, well, how dare you have these problems? We'll fork it and we'll remove all of the bad stuff out. Why didn't you just help fix the main product that was there, that everybody was using, that the internet is reliant on? Not we'll make a different one. And it's one of those rare cases where it's like, this should not be reinvented. You know, there was only a couple of guys working on the first place. Why would you then rip it away from them and do your own thing completely separate to it? It was completely the wrong way to go about it. It was kind of like throwing the ties out of the pram. And that's still how I look at LibreSSL today. And obviously they, they're making their name by removing all of the legacy code. That's great. Personally, I care about ABI compatibility and not bricking an entire distribution because you didn't like that old function signature. So I'm in support of OpenSSL staying as it is and getting easier to link with. And it's now got, I mean, the industry itself is behind OpenSSL. It's not behind LibreSSL. So I'm going to go where all the big players are at and support that standard. Okay, fair enough. But we've got a situation now where they can't get hold of a lot of the the original developers, a lot of emails are bouncing and stuff. And their attitude is, well, if you don't get back to us, we assume that you're cool with it. But that has rubbed a few people up the wrong way, hasn't it? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that's where it gets complicated. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, what would you do in that situation? What would you do in that situation? Um, I mean, unless you know they're dead. I mean, it might be different for their license versus something backed by the Free Software Foundation or something, but you you kind of do need their permission to relicense. That's that's the way it works. That's the way it works for most licenses. If they don't get it back, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but as assuming isn't good. But then the people who aren't replying in the first place also not good. Is this not an argument for the dreaded CLA contributor license agreement? Oh, you're right, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) So what, that would have some clause in it that says, if we try and reach you and you don't get back to us, we'll do what we we like. Well, in general, the CLA reserves the right of the authority or organization who has the CLA to relicense it and include your code, potentially in other projects. That's basically how most CLAs go down. So if they wanted to relicense it at a later stage, they could. And that's one of the main purposes of having those. See, this would also get around the other problem that I'm thinking of is, I mean, if you've got uh, a code base in which five people have contributed, you could maybe discuss it with them and and the chances of one of them or all of them agreeing is, is fairly high. But if you've got 500 people having contributed and you need 
a 100% consensus to move because everyone's code is, you know, equal to everyone else's, the chances of every single person out of 500 agreeing is fairly small. So even if you could contact them all, what happens when one person writes back and says, no, thank you? Like, they're, they're dead in the water, aren't they, at this point? And they're also stopping progress. They really are stopping progress. I mean, they, there's no reason to object this. I'm sorry, but I mean, I know others are going to disagree with me. It's like, well, it's a very permissive license. For something like OpenSSL, it damn well needs to be. Yeah, because you'd rather have it in proprietary stuff than not. Yeah, I mean, you, you want this to be ubiquitous, updated, accessible, and that anyone can use it from any project without interfering or cross-contaminating either the source or the resulting binaries. You know, you need the freedom to use it because it's it's the one of those truly important parts of the internet, as we all found out, <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, and you want Apple, Google, um, Microsoft to be using it and so that their eyes are on the same code. Yeah, and then it literally is. When, once you've got like the the corporate big players in, they do tend to actually look at the code, and then you will start to see disclosures. You will start to see CVEs. You see that with some projects like uh, glibc. Ever since you've had the likes of Chrome OS around, uh, prior to that with Android, it doesn't use straight up glibc, but Chrome OS does. And then you start to see all these bugs and CVEs coming around for for that from Google. You you definitely want the same sort of thing for OpenSSL. You'd want more corporate eyes looking at it because at the end of the day, everybody benefits. So on March the 25th, following uh, an output from Google's Project Zero, there was a a vulnerability with LastPass that was announced and and was bouncing around. And I was actually surprised to see Joe didn't put it in the the news just so that he could rib me for (laughs) using LastPass. And I was... I was pondering it because this is not the first time that LastPass has had some sort of security vulnerability and it, it probably won't be the last. Let's be honest, you know, code will potentially have flaws and it's good that they get found out by people who are white hat rather than black hat. And I was just sort of pondering, well, I, I use LastPass for all of my passwords. Obviously, it's password manager. It means that I have a, a unique password for every single site. It means that I have more characters in my passwords and and more variability in my passwords than I would do if I was trying to write them all down. Even if I was like keeping them somewhere else and I had unique passwords, what have you, it's, it is a lot easier. Yeah, and instead thought, you just have one master password of password one, two, three, and everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, and that keeps it all behind the, the locked door. But I mean, the, the thing that I was pondering um, was whether or not I should move to a, a self-hosted password manager. Because I think... Without a password manager, how are you supposed to keep all your passwords different and all of them secure and all this kind of stuff? That You have a very long, complicated password to keep people out of your password manager, but then within that, you have individual passwords for all the sites. And I was pondering, there's the um, KeepPass, is it? Yeah, KeePass. KeePass, yeah. KeepPass, KeePass. And I was pondering about whether I should move over to that and what have you. And I just kind of concluded that Despite the fact that LastPass has some vulnerabilities, they will like the way that they're implementing LastPass and the cloud stuff and the stuff on my phone, you know, all the where it's kept locally and and on the cloud will be done in a way which is almost always more secure than I can keep my own server. This was my conclusion: was that um, there was a discussion off air about the server we have our 
um, our website on and, and ways that we could lock that down to make it more secure and the other. And it just occurred to me that, you know, you always take the piss out of me, Joe, for having this uh, wildly uh, unsecure server on the internet. And I just kind of thought, I don't have the technical abilities to keep it locked down as hard as it needs to be. If I've got all of my passwords for all of the websites on there, there's no way I can keep that more secure than LastPass, even though there's a couple of little security holes here and there. And even KeyPass, you know, that may well come up with a security hole next week. And so nothing's nothing's perfect. But I think I was, I was going through this in my head and my defense is that at least LastPass are more secure in what they're doing with their server than I am with my home server. How long will they be in existence for? Uh, so I've used them for two and a half years when they were definitely years before that so do they make a profit i believe so because it's a annual subscription per user oh how much you pay for it Mm, i don't know and if i say it everyone will know that i don't know (laughs) okay (laughs) but it can't be that much it's it's affordable yeah i mean there's you're talking to the person who has Amazon Prime and a cleaner. Like I, keeping all my <laughs> keeping all my passwords safe is worth whatever it is they're charging. It's like twenty quid or something. It's it's more than sensible. Okay, so I mean, my only problem there would be that at some point they'll disappear. So you know they'll get bought, and the company who buys them doesn't really care much. They just have their own competing project, and they want to kill it. And then you have to go and try and get all your passwords out of that, which I'm sure they'll let you do, but you'll then have to go and do it anyway how difficult is it going to be to do that? Is it going to be a painful process for you in maybe two years or three? Or maybe they get bought and it kind of goes a bit stagnant for a while. You don't pay attention enough and then you've got this horrifically out-of-date password full of holes and you've gone, yeah, I need to to fix this. Then what do you do? Or worse still, you might, if you're lucky, get a text file or if you're really lucky, a CSV file with just all of your passwords and then they have to manually... Type them all in X <laughs> pound X pound star hash capital F lower F. Yeah, oh, find curly bracket goggles to do it for you in the future. You should have used emojis for your passwords. <laughs> Man waving to the left while waiting for a bus. <laughs> but I mean, even if in two years times that hap- two years time that happens, and it will be a painful weekend to move to something else. I will have had four years of knowing that someone else has my passwords well locked up, despite a couple of security holes, well locked up better than I could lock my passwords up myself. And then I'd be worried from the moment it was my responsibility to keep them locked up until the day that I stopped using my own self-hosted system. Because, you know, what if I am away for two weeks and don't update my computer and something happens or whatever it might be? It, the onus is suddenly on me and therefore it becomes a lot more... Uh, more worrying than have with LastPass. I mean, I, I know what you're saying, but you could argue that with name any service, name Netflix, name Firefox, anything could happen. I know, but Netflix is not going to somehow get access to my online banking. <laughs> <laughs> where okay, where do you keep your passwords? Um, I use I actually use a Mozilla thing quite a bit. Is that the built into the browser? App yeah, extension? yeah. Okay. Because I figure they're not for profit and they've got loads of money in the bank. To me that is a safer morally based way of doing it than say a company who's purely for profit because they get bought and sold and founders get bored and move on. 
it's not perfect either, but to me, it feels like a, a more, I don't know, safe bet. I could be wrong. Couldn't you just keep them in a text file that, uh, well, a GPG file on um, Google Drive or your own Nextcloud server or whatever, and whenever you need it, pull it down? Well, well that's pass. Uh, you're describing pass there. That's that's one that is actually out there. All right. Um, and a lot of people do use that. I think it uses... Uh, I might be wrong, but I think it's a Git repo to to store like uh, versions of it. But obviously, you can store that on a, on a remote server, and then you've got a GPG encrypted backup of your passwords, and then you've got them wherever you want. And you just sync them between. Well, then, then we come back to uh, like usability, ease of use, and the fact that LastPass is on my phone, which is where a vast amount of passwords had to be entered when you you know install apps or go onto web pages, all this kind of stuff, all on your phone. And it's a case of fingerprint recognition LastPass, you know decrypts all my sites says i recognize uh this form or this website whatever it is autofill and it is so much quicker and so much easier to keep a thousand passwords that way than having to every single time go to google drive unencrypt this thing copy it paste it and then you've copied text into your android phone and what else could look at the the um the copy pad, you know, whatever it's called, that you, you end up with a whole load of other questions and, and it's more difficult to use. And that's my reason for using my own stuff because that exact thing, once you start using something that's nicer and easier, there's no way you're going to move away from it unless it blows up in your face like, and they disappear and every every other pastor company also disappears too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay, you're so allowed to have nice things in life. No, you're not it, allowed it, to have nice okay. things. No, Everything must be painful. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, given the choice, I mean, me and you are very, very different here. Given the choice between paying for... I don't mind paying for peace it, Peace of mind and... No, it's not the payment of it, but convenience and peace of mind. I mean, this is basically what this all comes down to, right? It makes your life that bit more secure. You pay someone a few quid to sort it out for you, essentially, right? Or making my life very, very hard <laughs> and then starting <laughs> it away on these magical random servers. And by the way, starting on something like Google Drive, that can disappear easily. Or you might start getting stored, uh, paid for each byte of storage. The way things are going, I wouldn't be surprised with that. But I mean, you get a few years out of it. You know, at the end of it, yeah, it's going to be a pain to change it all over to another service. But if you get a few years out of it, that saved you a whole lot of memory. For sure. But I think where I would come from is none of the choices I think I've made are actually overly more complicated than the proprietary version. I, I would always aim to as closely match what's out there than to kind of go a very painful like text file copy paste yeah i mean copy and paste on a phone i just want to dash it off the wall every time i try to do that but you know i think the problem being coming dependent on uh, a sort of a proprietary paid for services you kind of lose the skill to kind of do it yourself i mean you used to be able to configure x i wouldn't even begin to know where to start with an x config file these days because it's for what the past decade it's almost been auto-configed and yeah you can go and try and learn that all again but the minute you try to it'd be just so painful yeah i see where you're coming from and i mean do you still shower with cold water just in case the boiler breaks you gotta keep (laughs) keep keep on your toes you know (laughs) Uh, only after he's been speaking to you (laughs) uh just for uh, to round this off it's uh, 12 dollars a year i've just looked it up okay cool 
So this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entraware. So Entraware are a UK-based company who manufacture and sell Linux-based laptops. And they come with Ubuntu or Ubuntu Mate 16.04 or 16.10, and they're about to start shipping 17.04 as soon as that comes out. And they've got a huge range of laptops from really cheap ones all the way up to proper powerhouses. So you've pretty much got you covered. And also they sell um, a server and they've got some desktop machines as well. And they seem to be constantly refreshing them. You, you, they don't seem to last that long on there. And then suddenly there's a new version with updated hardware, the, the latest um, KB Lake processors, that kind of stuff. So what you're saying, Joe, is they've got laptops which are cheap enough that you would buy one and good enough that professionals, 3D artists, video creators, those sorts of things could also get them and, and not be bogged down. And also, you know, I think you're sort of implying there that they've done their research and made sure that all the hardware and everything works well with the Linux software. So you don't get any of these problems with uh, having to do random updates or, or bodging things that don't quite work. So it all comes smooth out of the box. And I had the pleasure of meeting them at OddCamp when it was last on in 2015. Nice pair of guys. So uh, they come with a, a big thumbs up from us. Yeah, definitely. And they ship to the UK, Ireland, the Republic of France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And uh, they are planning, I think, to expand a little bit beyond that fairly soon. But for now, if you're in Europe or the UK, ha ha ha, <laughs> then uh, you can buy them. And if you do buy one of their excellent machines, remember to put Late Night Linux in the little box that tells you where you heard about them, and then they'll know that you heard about them from us. So yeah, check them out at entraware.com and uh, get yourself a new Linux laptop. So let's talk about Android convergence. You cannot have missed the news that the new Samsung Galaxy S8, I think, has come out, and it's got what is essentially the same thing as Ubuntu were trying to do, the same thing that Microsoft has been doing with uh, Continuum. And so I thought we should talk about Android as a desktop as well as a phone. It's surprising that uh, I think we and a lot of other podcasts kind of wrote off any converged device that um, Canonical were making, as in they haven't brought out in ages and it just seems to be sort of dead in the water. And now four months after the new year and all these predictions were made, Samsung, the biggest or at least most profitable um Android phone manufacturer has come out with their own version of convergence. And like you say, there are other versions which are less major than Microsoft and Samsung, like Maru or Maru that we uh, we had talked about previously on our former podcast and now is available, um, literally only just now, available on the Nexus 5, which it already was, and now the Nexus 7. So I've now put it onto my Nexus 7 because I think it's a, a very... You know, I was really impressed with it when we looked at it. I think it's a very useful bit of software to have on there, just a case of plugging in a, an HDMI adapter and you know Bluetooth keyboard and what have you, and there you go. So it's a little bit more than you know, a little bit more clunky than the Samsung one, but it, it works smoothly for what I need it for. Well, yeah, let's quickly talk about the Samsung one. You have to buy this extra dock for like hundred and fifty dollars or something and plug your phone into that, and then that plugs into the various peripherals. And it gives you just an Android desktop, so you're still running Android apps on the desktop. But what Maru does differently is gives you a full Debian desktop with XFCE. 
and you can share your files between that and Android, which to me, that's how I want it to be done rather than the Samsung way. Now, Jesse and I, we have spoken about this quite a lot on Linux Luddites back in the day. So I'd like to get the other guy's opinion on this. What do you think of, first of all, Android as a desktop? Uh, do you think it's got any legs at all? No. Meh. <laughs> Given, I imagine that you were required to have all the Google apps so you could fart around in all their web office nonsense, then it wouldn't obviously be for me. And I don't know. I I, I liked the idea of Ubuntu's Unity stuff. I, I thought it was a good concept where you, you you know you get the the changing desktop orientation, you get the touch mode when you're on the in the phone when you dock it, it switches into a desktop. I thought that was the way to go. So so hang, hang on a minute. If let's let's put the Google thing to one side and let's say that you can get all of the apps you currently have on your on your Android phone with uh, Fdroid working smoothly in the Android desktop as well with mouse support, let's say, would you then be interested in that on your phone? No, because my phone is a phone. Uh, like the apps I've installed are phone orientated or being out and about. Okay. The only thing that isn't is a browser and email. But what's the difference between your phone being a phone and the Ubuntu phone being an Ubuntu phone? Well, you've got a proper full desktop. You've got, all the tools that you would have on a, on a standard laptop, for instance. Aha, so that's where Maru comes in then. What do you think about that as an idea? Yeah, that does sound good. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Um, that could work. You need a pretty powerful device to run it, though. Kind of sounds like the difference between having a real desktop and a toy desktop. It's like, oh, we have window management. Great. Next. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's one of the big problems with Android as a desktop is that the apps are just not ready for it yet at least but surely with this samsung thing we're more likely to see development in that area now i suppose that's just dawned on me well that's not going to be of any use to you fanim because it's all going to be proprietary bollocks yeah but here's the thing if samsung come out and do that people will think it's their idea and they'll think it's great and they'll become more accepting of the idea that you could do that on a phone which i think might play into canonical sounds quite nicely because quite frankly if the likes of Apple or Samsung don't come up with it. People don't accept it as an idea, despite the fact that we've come up with this thing ages ago. I say we there collectively, obviously. Um, you know, it, you know, we've had package managers for God knows how long, and you know, app stores came along, and it seemed like, oh yeah, of course, this is how you do it. It's like, well, yeah, nothing new there, but you know, this might actually be the best thing that happens for Canonical. And as far as legitimizing their enterprise. Yeah, I'm imagining Shuttleworth to be pretty vindicated at this point that a company the size of Samsung are doing essentially exactly what he was talking about and and wanted to do and has been working on and is on hiatus now indefinitely. I don't know. We'll we'll see fairly soon, I suppose. I think Ike's point about uh, the fact that you can either have a something that looks like a desktop and just has some window management and something that is a desktop... And, and, you know, has all the things that we expect from a Linux desktop deep down. You've got terminals and you can SSH and all these sorts of things. I, I'm i actually quite torn because partly when you pl- when you want a desktop and you've got a mouse and a keyboard, just have more space, have more screen real estate and be able to have, you know, multiple windows open at the same time doing different things. That is just the nicety of having a desktop. And actually, that's most of what you want most of the time is 
if you want to go from a phone to a desktop, you just need those applications to be windowed and have them, you know, two or three at the same time. And it's only the tinkering that I'm going to need the full Linux desktop if I want to SSH back into my server, if I want to do some editing of audio or something, that I want dedicated Linux applications. And if that's happening, I'm just, you know, I'm wondering whether I'm more likely to have brought my laptop in the first place anyway. What would it take for you to get your your work work in your office onto a Maru type situation? <laughs> Windows, in a word. <laughs> well, okay, oh, but break it down to though the the types of applications. So there's two answers. The the one answer is that uh Work runs on thin clients, so I come home, I load up my Linux desktop, I load up any browser I have, and I can use Citrix to get into my work. And I've got my work PC on my on my home on my home computer. So actually, Maru, I think I did it last time we did the review. It, it, you know, as long as you've got a web browser, I can use my work PC, which is the thin client is Linux, but the fat client or the server is. Um, is Windows-based, obviously. If you were to then ignore that, the fact that we've got Citrix and Thin Clients, and I was to use um, a full, you know, use the applications natively, yeah, it would have to be powerful enough to open like half a dozen Word documents, half a dozen Excel documents, a dozen PDFs, all at the same time. And that isn't quite where the Nexus 7 is, certainly. Um, and it would need to have Windows applications, but if you if you could substitute those out for open office ones, then th- that's what I'd be looking for. But let's fast forward five or ten years when ARM processors have become incredibly powerful, potentially, right? And maybe you might have a 16-core ARM processor and only eight of them are normally working when you're using it as a phone, but then when you plug it in, to your peripherals, it can kick into all 16 for, for argument's sake. And then suddenly you've got the power of, you know, a, f- a fairly reasonable laptop or desktop machine now. I mean, surely that is attractive to, to have it that you don't need this great box of a PC or even a, a little NUC. Like just to have one device would be good if it was powerful enough and could do the job. Yeah. So my uh, home office has moved to, uh, I think they call it agile working which is a a horrible phrase i apologize and basically it means no one has any desktops anymore everyone has laptops and you have a dock and so you walk in you bang your laptop into the dock and you've got you know a 24 inch monitor and a keyboard and a mouse and it means that if you're working on a client site or you're working at home wherever it might be your laptop's always with you and other people can then use that desk so you don't have to have as many desks it's you know it's agile working and so yeah, there's no reason, other than maybe doing some work on the laptop on the train, there's no reason I couldn't have a dock at my my workstation or the, on the desk at work and a dock at home. It's going to be significantly cheaper to give someone just a phone rather than a phone and a laptop, which they currently do. And it's going to be, t- you know, with just uh, another dock that people take home and is, is less to carry around. Everyone has to have these fucking great laptop bags and, you know, carry 15-inch laptops to work and back and to work and back. So it would be beneficial. Obviously, they'd have to run Windows apps and all, that kind of, all those caveats, but it would be really good from that point of view. Well, we're getting to the point where you'll be able to run Windows apps on ARM very soon. That's something they're actively working on. And so potentially you could have that. You could have Android and Windows. And I mean, I know that's not attractive 
to any of us, basically, <laughs> or many of the people listening. But I think in the wider real world, especially in enterprise, that would be very attractive to people. And it, it might actually sell well. And, and maybe this Samsung thing is going to fail, or maybe it's going to be a huge success and push the, the market towards this idea of convergence and one device. Because the thing is, ARM devices now, the high-end phones like this new Samsung, they are ridiculously fast. They're, they're getting to the point where they're having six plus gigs of RAM. There's no reason why you can't do at least basic office type work on them. Does your phone not have six gigs of RAM, Joe? No. I think it has three. <laughs> What's the 3T got? Six. Ah, <laughs> uh, check you out. What's the three got? I think three, or maybe four. It's 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 a sensible it's a sensible amount. I mean, no one needs six gig of RAM. Let's be honest. I've used one point five at most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check the Google apps on it. Suddenly, you'll be using five point five. Hey, well, I got two and a half days of battery, no problem. <laughs> so nice because you don't let yourself do nice things. <laughs> That's why you have battery. You do nothing. I need all. I need all that memory to store those text files for my passwords. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Ike, you've been uh, quite silent on this. What's, yeah, what's your view? I mean, I'm, I'm I'm kind of torn on it because the the current approach for convergence, in my opinion, is wrong. Um, this is a great way to start a defense. <laughs> so, at the moment. It's all basically app design at the moment. That's all anyone is thinking about. It's how do I get this code base to be responsive? It's all about a responsive UI, right? So on this phone, I'm going to have this screen. I'm going to have that screen on that screen. It's it's taken a lowest common denominator design approach. And you can see evidence of that in material design because that's exactly what it is, right? And then you start to see these apps on the desktop and they look completely wrong. Now, for me, they're, they're getting confused about when and why form factor matters. And they're caring too much about how this software runs there, there and there. I think we need to get to the point where there's no such thing as a fixed form factor anymore. So you would have something like a computing device or like some sort of card that would have all the computing power that you would ever need. And then everything else literally just needs to be a thin client onto it. So a laptop or a phone eventually just becomes no more than a screen and sensors, which connects to your personal computing device. Everything else then is a different view onto what you're doing. But to enable that, you also need to think about information and protocols and the way that different devices interact and communicate in an open standardized way around the home, offices and enterprise. They're the things that actually do matter because once we get to a point where we do have these devices 10, 15 years down the line, hopefully sooner because, hey, everybody wants a see-through glass phone, right? Everybody wants it. It's not practical, but and it won't have Google on it for failing. But... The things that are going to matter then, if I walk into the office and, you know, like we've got all these converged devices, if they can't fucking speak to one another, what's the point? You know, like I can run this one app on 15 different devices and it'll look right on each of the devices. But none of these different apps between these different devices can then talk to another. I can't get a view in my home on my big sci-fi kitchen table or my TV of the thing that I'm looking at, the handset device or the laptop device. If they, they can't share the information in an open standard way, then it's not going to matter. 
everyone is caring far too much about the the UI and the lowest common denominator approach. That that's what concerns me about all this. It's like great, you've got a laptop that's a phone that's awesome. But it's all about emulating responsiveness in uh, news experience. Nothing to do with information, protocol, sharing, communication. Nobody has given a single thought to any of that yet. And that's the stuff that actually matters. So hopefully this will actually set a trend where people think about true convergence. Not just form factor, but a converged information experience. Which is what I think we really need to go for. That's, that's my view on it. You say no one's been thinking about it. It seems that one person has, eh? Oops. <laughs> it's it's been on my mind for a while because like in my perfect world, you know, you know I've been going on for ages about how I want a home computing experience. Yeah. To me, you would have like all of your accounts and all of the home and family information effectively like in a home server, but you could access it from anywhere or any device or any surface in the home. Now that to me would be perfect. On top of that, you would have something I mean, we're going to get it to the point where you're going to be able to have a computer that's as small as an ID card. And hopefully it would be, you know, something that was probably like biometrics or something that works slightly better than biometrics. That was like a card and a computer that could go with you. So that would be your personal storage, your private encrypted information that that goes with you. Additionally, you should be able to connect output and input devices to that, like very thin form handsets or tabletops or whatever just to extend your computing experience. So instead of restricting a human being to a single computing platform, you've augmented their existence through computing, as opposed to trying to bend that person around computing, which is what we do now. So right now I'm using a desktop that has a 2D linear input devices. Those restrict my thinking, my creativity, and what I can do in life. If I had none of those restrictions, imagine what we could do. So that's where I've been thinking for a long, long time and kind of been hoping that the world is ready enough for that within my lifetime that I can do something about it. You've been designing a minority report interface, haven't you, without telling anyone? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. No, I'm more thinking about, you know, everywhere is an opportunity. Every surface is an opportunity. That's kind of where my thinking has been. You know, like there's a lot of focus going on at the moment, things like virtual reality and... It, I'm more interested in the augmented side. You know, instead of making a, a specific kind of hand recon, uh, handwriting recognition pad, why can't I just have a standard pen that also records? You know, simple things like that. We've spent a long time as a race getting used to certain ways of doing things very naturally. Why don't we augment those instead of trying to change our own behaviors to suit these 2D basic systems? So that's kind of where my brain's been for the last couple of years now. And that's the kind of converged, augmented experience I want to see. Not, we've added Windows on Android. Because that's what it boils down to. Yeah. Well, you're a dreamer, Ike. But you've got to have dreamers, haven't you? And uh, I read today that uh, Tesla made more money than Ford in the last quarter. So, you know, there you good go. Good man, good man. I mean, I'm going to be broken dead in like another two years, but I can dream in between, you know, before I resign to the tenant super. You know? <laughs> I'll drink to that. So a bit of admin then. Uh, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact where you'll find all sorts of ways to get in contact with us. And also latenightlinux.com slash support where there are all sorts of ways you can support us. So now you can do PayPal donations, 
and PayPal recurring donations. Um, we've got a Patreon as well, so check that out, and even a Bitcoin address. Um, a lot of people had asked if we, they said if you had a Patreon, we'd contribute to it. Well, now is your chance if you want to help us out. And we're not having any paywalls or anything like that. The show is free. And if you're in a position to support us financially, that's brilliant. We massively appreciate it. If you're not, as long as you're listening, that's all we really care about. We just think less of you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that some podcasts and some creative projects have this patreon model where they give you bonus features and stuff like that and you know i'm not knocking it but i'm just saying that's not what we're going to do we want the podcast to be free and apart from anything else we just don't have time to do any bonus features so i was gonna say this is mostly laziness isn't it <laughs> yeah so you don't get any um but yeah it'd be much appreciated you know it helps keep the lights on keep the server running all that kind of stuff and you know, if everyone who was listening supported us, then we'd probably be able to take some time off work and it, you know, to do the show and it'd probably be better as a result of it. So, uh, yeah, do check that out. I Does Ike have illustrious footsteps? <laughs> They're gorgeous. Because <laughs> according to the show notes, he does. And following Ike's illustrious footsteps, Joe is recently a guest on Destination Linux. Congratulations, Joe. Yes, thank you. Looking like a Bond villain. Or Satan guy, as someone called me in the YouTube comments. Because <laughs> I had a red blanket behind me, because I didn't want people to see the state of my flat, basically. So, uh, yeah, check me out. We just talked for like over an hour, hour and a half, I think, um, about just all sorts, really. It was a really good chat. Did you find them continuously like looking at their watches and coughing awkwardly and sort of saying, okay, anything else, Joe? No. Or were they also engaged and chatting away? Or were you just nattering away like you do well i thought they were until now <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to give it a watch it's uh sounds like sounds good yeah and there's uh they've got a podcast version of it as well um so yeah do check that out and, and thanks for boiling me down to the guy who doesn't install google apps on his phone <laughs> <laughs> oh you watched it then uh, yeah well what, oh, what was it seen if you said anything about me you know <laughs> well, I, I had, yeah, well, well, we'll just move on from that then, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the last episode, we were talking about Nextcloud and how they had been automatically scanning the, the public internet to find old versions and reporting the people to um, effectively their ISPs. And we had a big, long discussion about it. Ike and I were very much on one side saying that it was outrageous. Jesse was defending the other side saying that it was in the interests of the many. Um, and Phelium listened to it and said that he was um, in agreement with Jesse. So we're basically 50-50 split on this. Um, and then having listened to it, Yoss from Nextcloud got in touch and said, can I please come on the show and defend us and i said yes and so now here he is so hello yos hey hi guys nice to be here and thanks uh, for inviting me over or at least well, willing to take my uh, request well right of reply and all that kind of stuff so let's get some facts out of the way first um is it true to say that you guys were scanning the internet in an automated fashion for instances of Nextcloud and OwnCloud that were outdated and therefore had security holes in them? Well, you can put a couple of caveats on the terms, but let's just... Sim so the thing we used to scan between parentheses is we simply went to um, 
what's that tool? Uh, Shodan, yes. So essentially, we got a bunch of IPs from Shodan and then checked what version they were running. That's what we did. So whether that it's not really a blanket scan of the internet, because that's what Shodan and Google do. We obviously don't exactly have the resources to do that. But we took the list of IPs that came out of Shodan and checked what version was running. So from Shodan, you can already see that it's own cloud or next cloud. Right. And then when you had those IPs um, of the the instances that were outdated and therefore presumably had security holes in them, Mm -hmm. what did you do with that information? So I want to go back a little bit because, I mean, it's not like we were like one day and said, guys, let's scan the internet and see what's out there. What happened is that after we launched in, in August last year, the first thing we did was to disable the updater because it broke a lot of user installations, the one that we took from the fork, so to say, and we wrote a new one. Uh, so the first couple of releases, like NextCloud 9 um, and quickly followed by NextCloud 10, they came without uh, a working updater. It only gave a warning, but it wouldn't actually do anything. So when we fixed the updater somewhere in September, uh, I think, um, our security guy said to me, you know, yeah, you know, I think a lot of people haven't been updating. Uh, we should really try to to do, well, I don't know, tell people that it's important to update, etc., etc." And I was like, well, are you sure? I mean, people follow our blogs and everything, right? Or at least you expect they would. So he looked on the updater uh, server and counted IP addresses because when you know, an own cloud or next cloud server um, looks for updates. It says, hey, I have number X. What uh, do you have for me? So he just counted that for a couple of days and came back and he said, well, about 3,000 people haven't updated since we started in three months' time, four months' time, three-ish. So I was like, oh, well, nice. We have 3,000 users. And, oh, shit, they didn't update since we got started. So... Well, we then did a bit of a campaign. We did tweets and we did blogs and we did, uh, we made like a special update notification that would point people to our how to update blog. And that worked reasonably well from what, it, from what we could tell. Um, but I also said to him like, whoa, you know, so many people didn't update that that's a pretty big security issue. And well, he kind of took it in his free time to look a bit at how big this issue was in the more general population. So at uh, CCC, the Chaos Computing Congress, I think is the name, in Germany uh, in December, he, uh, while we were talking, he said, yeah, you know, I had a bit of a look. And, um, well, you know, Shodan shows about 100,000 servers. So I set one of my servers to look what versions they run, which is very easy because you just ask for status.php from those servers. And, you know, I scanned, I don't know, about 10,000 in uh, in a week or so. And about two-thirds was running really outdated versions. And some of those really, really, really outdated in the sense that, you know, you can just take over the entire server. And we had a lot of people running on Cloud 5, which means you have remote code executions in there, which is pretty nasty. And those people included companies and political parties, as you might have seen in the... Um, article that was published on Der Spiegel, the German uh, news site. So, well, we talked about it. We said, oh, that's pretty nasty. I mean, you know, we're promising people a private cloud, and that's what people think they get. They have. But, of course, you have zero privacy. If it is this easy to find, 
Because uh, you can just go and show them and get the IP addresses. And if it's then that easy to just walk in. So we should do something. Right, but presumably the something that you would do at that point is email the people in those political parties and organizations who are running the outdated software. So, yeah, so what we then did, like in January, we told Frank, the, the well, the guy who started OwnCloud back then, and then NextCloud, um, and our boss, technically. I mean, we don't really work very much like a traditional company, but let's say my boss. Um, and we had discussion, what should we do? So this was our first thought. We should try and contact everybody privately. And this quickly made us all realize that, you know, you have the whole own cloud versus next cloud thing. I mean, this would, everybody, I mean, what would people say? I don't know if I've asked this from people and they all say, well, yeah, that would be considered a big marketing scam from Nextcloud to dissuade people from using OwnCloud. Well, not necessarily. If you said to them, because OwnCloud is still around, there are, uh, you know, updated versions of OwnCloud that they could update to. Sure. Yeah. We told people like, so this was our initial plan. And I even drafted emails to send out. Yeah. So this, this was what we wanted to do. But the thing is, it's pretty hard to, I even, you know, I wrote an email with like, here, you can download new versions of OwnCloud or NextCloud. We also thought about contacting OwnCloud, but we didn't really expect their security. Well, you know, most of the engineers left. We didn't really know the people who were there now. And we didn't, to be honest, very trust them very much to handle this very well. We were kind of worried about that. So we, well, thought about sending emails. And then Lucas said, you know, um, well, we should ask the search. So like, I don't know, maybe, you know, shadow server. This is like a volunteer organization. Uh, consider it like your local neighborhood watch, you know, it's like they're volunteer, uh, organizations, uh, volunteers who try to deal with security issues in a responsible way. Uh, unlike how usually big companies and governments do it. So we contacted them and they essentially said, you shouldn't try, I mean, you can't even, well, we don't have people's email address, obviously. The only thing we could do is try admin at and stuff like that. Uh, but they do have contact details that goes mostly via the ISPs that work with them on, on security issues. And that's what they do when there are indeed, you know, servers sending spam and other stuff like that. And they said, let us handle it. We were like, well, you know, you guys know what you're doing. So, all right. Um, so we worked with them to get them a list. Uh, of the IP addresses that we knew and what version they were running. We used unique UI, UUIDs to identify those so that people couldn't use the scanner initially to try and find other systems that were insecure, even though, of course, it is as easy as just going in your browser and typing the address of the server and then slash status.php. But, well, you know, because that's the only thing we did, right? Was this Was this whole process... Uh, the path you chose because you didn't want to be seen as pointing out um, frailties in the own cloud servers because they were caught up with your own next cloud uh, instances which didn't have updated software. I mean, isn't there a way in which you could have identified... Well, the next cloud instances were up to date. I mean, at the moment, I think like 97% this. So this wasn't really... But I mean, come on, we wrote own cloud, right? I mean, this is still our project, even though we fired management and they own the, um, the, the trademark. So we had to rename it. But for us, this is still our project. These are our users. 
At least that's how we see it. How can I put this nicely? Um, if you'd written it properly in the first fucking place, then you wouldn't have had these vulnerabilities to be exploited. Now, this project is seven years old. I mean, before our, our, I mean, OwnCloud 5 is five years old. Yeah, I mean, I sure, uh, first of all, there's no secure software anyway. Even today, I'm sure there will be things to be found, especially in a project as big as this. And back then, the project was two years old. I mean, it was a couple of volunteers. Yeah, but if you hadn't rushed out the initial versions of Nextcloud... Then the project wouldn't exist. I mean, you know what happens when you wait forever, right? Yeah, but you release this without an installer, uh, without an updater. You release software to gain market share without an update mechanism, and it's come back to bite you. No, 9 and 10, that was solved, that problem. This was a 3000 that was talking earlier about. I'm sorry, this is about the older ones, right? The other thing you just said is that 97% of the systems are up to date. Is that st- yeah, does that statistic come from before or after you shopped them to the ISPs and had those internet connections disabled? We didn't do that. Eh? We had No, you gave, said, to, we right, you gave it to another organization yes. so that they could take the blame for your actions. Now, 97% of them are secure now. That's after you went to another organization, after you failed to notify the people involved, and then you've put the blame on another external organization. You said that you wouldn't take ownership of any of this situation. That's what the problem is. You didn't reach out to the affected people. So you guys would say it would have been better to try and contact people directly yes, ourselves. Yes, and you said that you didn't trust the team over OwnCloud. This feels like a bit of bitterness. You, it, the responsible thing would have been well, to tell OwnCloud and right? to collaborate but, with OwnCloud. Well, but you actually, said that you didn't we did trust talk to them. them and we offered to collaborate and we got no reply. Well, you said a minute ago that you didn't trust them. We didn't know them. And we hadn't seen much, well, useful security work coming in that first. The thing is, we discussed multiple options, including doing a blog about it, right? Which would be pretty stupid because at that point you will alert the, well, the bad guys and, well, the users who haven't updated for five years are clearly not following any blogs or tweets because we've been tweeting for seven, for five years that you should update because of security. So we were afraid that that would be what they would do very quickly. I mean, there's not really much we could do to stop them from doing that. And that would endanger all those users. But again, I don't want to talk too much about what I expected them to do because we didn't really know. And we did contact them. We did uh, offer to work with them on this. And that, well, let's just say it didn't work out. So this other company that you contacted, was it Shadow Not a company. I think it, it's, it's a volunteer security, number of volunteer security organizations, like the organizations that handle this class, the computer emergency response teams. They're organized differently in all countries, right? Some of them are uh, from uh, collaboration of the ISPs. Others are um, sometimes uh, part of the government or their volunteer organizations. It varies between the countries. Yeah, yeah so, so it varies. But you, you contacted them and you said, what's the best thing to do? Yes. And they seem to have taken it and run with it and sure they do this this is not a unique thing this is what they normally do with this kind of situation right so you were expecting them to do this then well we didn't know what they would recommend and then they said this is what we would do and we said well that sounds like a sensible thing to do like if we would reach out to people again this would first of all we wouldn't be able to reach a lot of people perhaps not everybody has admin ads configured as ending up in their inbox and second of all we were afraid that a lot of people would complain and we would get this kind of 
conversations, but then about us doing a big marketing scam rather than caring about security. So we thought, let the experts handle it. Right. So you were aware that they were going to contact people's ISPs and you approved of we that. We didn't know how they would reach out. Uh, That's at least not what I you just didn't. said. That, that is not what no, you we, we knew they would reach out. I didn't know that it would go via the ISPs. I personally, but I, I guess... Well, how did you we think it was going to happen? Did. Um, what, did, what did you think would happen? <laughs> I'm no expert in this. Um, right, and, and herein lies the problem, right? They were the experts. That's why we left it up to them. Nextcloud, to me, this whole thing has made Nextcloud seem like an amateur operation to me. The, the, how you have dealt with this reflects very, very badly on you as an organization, as a company. It, it, it makes you look unprofessional so as you, far as I'm concerned. You continue to think we should have reached out directly to people. Yeah, you I, should have I disagree tried. personally. You should on have that, tried. Honestly. You never tried in the first place. This is the problem. You, you were afraid of, you were afraid of owning the vulnerabilities. You were afraid of reaching out to people. At the end of the day, these are your vulnerabilities because it's originally your code base before yes. you guys came away from them. So they are your vulnerabilities. Now you've made digs here at OnCloud and you originally said that you didn't trust those guys. So you didn't reach out to him you later followed ah. up and said that you did follow reach out to him so i'm just going to dismiss that straight away the thing is you should have taken ownership of the vulnerabilities you shipped software to gain market share immediately without a viable update mechanism that is irresponsible software development that is not related to the security scan and i say that as a that, software engineer that was yeah. irresponsible you've then later said that 97 percent of your systems out there are now up to date which directly correlates with the statement that i made on the last show that the reason you are doing this is so that you can tell people that 97%, some statistic of the installations that you have are secure for public relations. And that's exactly what you've done, whether it was intentional or not. You haven't owned the problem. You haven't owned the vulnerabilities. You've had poor software development practices. And now you can tell everyone 97% of our installations are safe and secure. So all you've had out of this is a PR spin. Wow. You can tell me if I'm wrong or I'm right, but that's the way it's turned out. Well, I guess if we would have done what you tell me to do, you would have said the exact same thing. Sure, that but... It, would, it was a big marketing spin. So essentially what you're saying is there's nothing we could have done better. Right, but transparency up front. If you just engage with what the community... What would that have been... Talk with people. <laughs> talk with the people and discuss the problem. So we should have done a blog post about it. Yeah, basically. It was, it was a drastic problem, wasn't it? It was a plague of a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you think not that we should have contacted people directly, we should have done a blog post about both. it. Both. You should have tried both, but you tried neither. So that we would warn basically the hackers to go and attack all these systems. Come on, they knew. Guys know how to run Nmap. Come on, let's not be silly about it. I can run it now and I can get you an address of everyone in my subnet who has vulnerabilities. Yes, but what you don't know is what, how many of these servers and how easy they right. are to hack. We can go on the NVD and find all the CVEs that have ever existed within OwnCloud and NextCloud. Any, any child could do that. That's not the problem. People know the vulnerabilities are out there. They know the vulnerable software and how to find it. The thing is, is having transparency with the user base and show your support for them and how we're going to fix this together as a community. You rely on community contributions to improve your product. Therefore, you should be in communication with them as a responsible software vendor to give them an opportunity to improve it for everybody and you didn't try you didn't try it at all you copped out and you passed the blame to another organization to take the fall for grassing everybody up to the isps wow okay that's one way of looking at it i guess i mean seriously as i said 
a blog post, I think, would have been incredibly irresponsible. I mean, this is how security is usually handled. You try and warn people, give them time to update, and then talk about it, which is what we did. And the transparency, I mean, how many projects do you know that just immediately publish CVEs as soon as there's a problem? This is what Drupal did. And what happened? Within eight hours, you could consider every Drupal system that wasn't updated owned. That would not have been a good move, do you think? I know about the CVE embargoes, but this isn't an immediate thing, right? Yeah, these CVEs were already out there. These are public CVEs that have gone past the embargo period. Yes, but as far as we could tell, nobody had figured out yet that you could, in an automated fashion, hack about two, three hundred thousand servers. And we didn't want to warn them either. We want to warn the owners. So you left the vulnerability wide, basically. Well, we couldn't close the vulnerability. If we had an automated updater, that is something, obviously, we want in the future to develop. So you will focus on that in future, automatic updates, transparency, because that would be the only way to turn this around. No, I don't disagree with that. Seriously, guys. I mean, that is absolutely the right thing to do. But obviously, we couldn't go back in time and fix vulnerabilities from back then. I mean, well, we did fix them, obviously, but people didn't update. Now, there was an updater that warns people that was in, in NextCloud 9 and 10, and that was in the older own cloud versions. But obviously, people can ignore the updater that tells them you should update. And this was there. The thing that wasn't in place in 9 and 10 was that it could do the update for you with a bunch of clicks. Most people update manually or from packages, and that just worked. But we didn't have the automated updater. So Uh, I'll say one last thing on this, because I've probably gone at you a bit hard here, I will admit. I will say one last thing on this. So the the installations of NextCloud and your older installations of OwnCloud, which you would effectively have an IP over, who would you say owns those installations, yourself or the user? Because you, you've taken it upon yourself to report somebody else's instance. Now, would you consider that instance on another person's machine your property or theirs? No, not at all ours. It's theirs. It's open source. So what so, gave you the authority then to report them to that person's provider? Report is not what we did. Okay, squealed. <laughs> By uh, proxy, you again, know, we, it's, if, it's, you've explained that you didn't do it directly, but you, we also, you've explained that you knew that the organizations that you were dealing with were going to do that. Well, I mean, they were what, going was, to warn users. I mean, I personally am, I'm not a security guy, right? Um, I knew that the users would get warned how that would happen. Um, I actually don't really recall if, if we went into the details there. So you engaged with a third-party organization, went in with both feet without researching first? I'm not saying that our security guy didn't know or that we as an organization didn't know. I personally don't recall if we discussed the details. That's And as a company, how are your business decisions made? Because it seems like there's a lot of disparate decisions. This was not a company thing, right? This was us who care about our users, even though, I mean, to a large degree, this is not something I think that... It, company well, benefits much from, but we didn't want to do nothing. That was a thing. I mean, we were personally worried about this. I, I think that seems reasonably, well, understandable, I guess, if you care about people's privacy. Right, so we, we're kind of getting to the end of this, um, running out of time, but the, the big question that I've got for you is, 
let's forget about what has happened in the past. Let's concentrate on the present and the future. Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to do this again? W- would you do it again the same way? And if not, what would you do differently? Well, I don't. Yeah, I think people have been warned as far as possible. I mean, if they don't update now, I don't think it is fair to to claim that it's our fault or that there is something we can do. I mean, other than, I don't know, hacking their systems and update it automatically, which seems a pretty, pretty big violation of, you know, people's <laughs> ownership, right? I mean, that's that's the only other thing we could reasonably do. Right, because, do. I mean, presumably so, you no. didn't find all of the vulnerable ones that are out no, there, and no, you, you we could didn't. indeed do uh, more scans and find more, right? Yeah, but that's the thing. This is so... This is also why we talked to Der Spiegel, because we can't and don't really want to, I mean, scan the entire internet indeed. Um, that's also, well, not our jobs. And we wanted to warn people as well as possible, which we've done as far as was doable. But I think about a little over two thirds of the system from what we can, uh, from what we know, we couldn't scan. That's our estimate. Right, on Shodan, you can see about 100,000 systems. Of those, we could scan about 70k. And of those, more than two-thirds was insecure. So the other 200,000 that you can't even see on Shodan, we don't know about any of those. And that's uh, anything that isn't primarily and only running Nextcloud, you can't see. So shared hosting, if you have a WordPress and a Nextcloud, and whenever Shodan pings your server and WordPress says hi, then that's a WordPress server for Sheldon, so we wouldn't know it. So that's also why we talked um, uh, at, at the end to Der Spiegel and said, you know, can you help us at least warn people? That's what also our blog was about and our tweets, etc. to try and, well, we've warned people as much as we could. They had three weeks, four weeks-ish to update. In this time, we would expect the, well, people with less clean uh, intentions to have caught up to the whole event and perhaps be looking into how to automate an attack on these uh, systems. So we should now warn everybody. And this is how a CVE process normally works. Now you give people time to update and then you try to, well, talk about it so that the people who didn't think it was urgent enough might hopefully wake up and update after all. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks for coming on and uh, and telling us about it. Um, and hopefully, lessons have been learned by everyone involved with this. Well, that's certainly all right. Thanks, guys. Okay. Well, that was something of an interview. <laughs> um, and you may have noticed that a Phelan wasn't there because <clears throat> he was flying back, I think, from Scotland or something, and that we were a little bit pissed off. And a little bit moody. That was because Jos had been rather late for the interview. So and you just didn't that, have your sandwiches. Yeah. And so that might explain why we were a little bit pissed off. Um, but Phelim, you don't really agree with us, I think it's fair to say. No, not really. Um, I think I think it's good to, to not softball people in an interview. Um, I think we see too much of that but I think you might have been using the bats on them a bit too much. <laughs> um, yes, perhaps. So I would say um, they took a bad situation. I think they tried to make as good a go at it as they could. And to be honest, I'm not really sure they did anything terribly wrong. Now, you can go on about the fact that the software was not written to your high standards, Joe. 
which I think was a, a fraction harsh for software that's like many, many years old because he was talking about like own cloud five and stuff. So that's which, which the same team wrote, but okay, it might have been. Yeah, a long I mean, time they ago. did, but I mean, he may not have even been there at that time, to be honest. I'm not entirely sure he was. Um, and you know, you've got a lot of face changes and you've got a lot of company buyouts. And I don't know if any of you have been a company buyout, you know that a lot of people can go. A lot of good people can go, a lot of new people can come in, and just in general the the attitude of a company can change. So you know, I think I think that's the reason why they split the company in the first place anyway, was because they were not happy with how it was becoming more sales orientated or whatever. That's yeah. that's 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 beside the point though. I mean, you can see he was coming from the point where there was a Existing user base who, you know, you, you were making the point that, you know, oh, you're attacking people in your community. Anybody who's running that out of date, a piece of software who's kind of done a drive-by install on their own box, they're not really part of your community. They're, they're someone using your software. And, you know, that's not someone contributing back. That's somebody using. And I don't think it's kind of fair to, to give them that highest status as such. And, you know, if it, it's against the terms of service, their ISP that they're not supposed to be running a server, well, at least update the damn thing so you're not caught out in these things. Because using the likes of Shodan, which is a, a you know an online tool for for searching for this stuff, you know they're going to be known, they're going to be used, and you don't know what's on that box. That could be you know your kids' births pictures, whatever. Someone who's using that doesn't really know how to run a server. Maybe they shouldn't be, but they're doing it. And, you know, someone could have access to that, you know, bribe it, whatever. You, you don't know what they're going to do. And I think it's it's a bit harsh to kind of to, to load on Joss because they went to a cert. So as far as I'm concerned, they, they actually went the responsible route. They could have just gone and hammered those guys themselves, but they actually did go to a cert. That cert maybe took a poor choice in certain respects for doing some of it. But to be honest, if... I'm sitting at my job and I'm dealing with stack loads of spam from servers that have been owned by the likes of 419 scammers, whatever. I'm not feeling too sorry for them if they get taken offline, because to be quite honest, it's not just a internal network. If you you take a piece of software using your internal network, do whatever you want with it. But if you put it on the internet, you've become part of potentially a problem for everybody else. So You've got to be responsible. It's why we have insurance and cars. It's why we have MOTs. Um, you know, you you can't just go out there, do whatever you want, and then expect nothing to be a consequence for it. So taking them offline, yeah, fair enough, wasn't the greatest way of doing it, but I'd rather they were offline than online. And as he's got the numbers to back it up, that's an awful lot of installs that people did. And to be honest, if that was my data on there and I'd somehow forgotten that I had one sitting there with something useful on it, I'd feel like an arsehole. I'd feel embarrassed, but I'd be kind of happy that I could get my data protected again and go, oh shit, I'm going to update it and then go do it, you know? Yeah. And another positive thing is that you've actually been using Nextcloud for a long time now and you really like it, don't you? Well, to be honest, I, I wouldn't actually be able to do Google free without the likes of OwnCloud and then Nextcloud. Um, that that it wouldn't have been possible. I mean, yeah, fair enough. I could have had a phone with no Google apps on it, but I would be doing very little with my phone bar storing contacts on a SIM, and you know, that's it. Whereas I've got calendaring, I've got notes, um, you know, I've got all my contacts sync. Get a new phone, I just plug the thing in and activate the the account. I mean. No software's perfect, um, but I think having those guys with a team 
a full security team, they're going to do a better job of it than me going, oh shit, I installed a CalDAV server, what did I do with that again? Oh fuck. And then, yeah, it gets owned. So, yeah, nothing's perfect. Uh, and I'm kind of happy with the way they do it, so I'll take it. Yeah. Okay, well, hopefully next time we speak to them, it'll be about something more positive, one of their new releases or features or something like that. But that'll do it for episode seven then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, more rambling and God knows what else. Uh, and before I get to it, no bloody Irish again. Seriously. <laughs> anyway, right. So, yes, I've been Joe. I've been Jesse. I've been Phelan. I'm still Lakey. Hey. See you later. <laughs>